Okie dokie. Oh. A podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. <laughs> what are we going to talk about today? Today we're continuing our journey through the Gospels. This is Gospels Part 10. In the previous episode, we had this weird sort of mashup of where we were looking at multiple different Gospels at the same time, and we learned in uh, Mark, at the beginning of Mark, that the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has so much in it concerning uh, his divinity and him being the Messiah. We learned a little bit about a uh, timeline of when that gospel started, and then surprisingly, the gospel of Jesus Christ started by talking about John the Baptist and yeah. <laughs> what he was preaching, um, a repentance of when he was called out of the wilderness. So anything you'd like to add before we jump back into this big chunk of text that we're going through? Well, only to say that, you know, we, we tried to dive deep into a few topics. Uh, I remember uh, we had like baptism and the gospel itself, uh, ideas of the kingdom and repentance. And in all of that, I think that we may have kind of been going against the grain on, on some of those things, which is all good. I mean, that's where we're headed. And just uh, just to say, that won't be the end. These particular topics are going to come up over and over, uh, and it's going to be in relation to the text. And so hopefully, the more you listen, the more sense it'll make. Uh, but for now, we're just going to keep moving on. Okay. Where are we now in the text? All right. The next block that we'll be looking at, uh, it's going to cover Matthew and Mark. For Matthew, we're in chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. And in Mark, we're back in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, and again, the Mark verses are going to be a little bit out of order, or I guess you could flip it either way, but somebody's out of order here, right? But how about I go ahead and I'm just going to pick the uh, the Matthew version, uh, and I'll read that and we'll get started. Okay, and just a reminder, we have a presentation page, a PDF for you to look at with these different tables of the text, so just use that as your reference. Yeah, so here we go. Matthew chapter 3, verse 4. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. All right. Now we're getting into some real story. You ready? Let's do it. So here you have John the Baptist. Now we already know that he's living as a Nazarite. And what are some of the things that you can't do as a Nazarite, Samuel? You can't consume wine or strong drink. Uh, There's some aspect of not cutting your hair. Uh, You can't touch uh, dead corpses, uh, things like that. Yeah, yeah. So... Now, I know this isn't classic, but but you could look at that as a form of asceticism. Uh, now, asceticism, is that a familiar term for you, Samuel? Yeah, it's kind of like you're denying yourself maybe other normal worldly privileges or pleasures in order to try to put yourself in a place 
where you are like at a heightened sense of, you know, spiritual reality. Yeah, I'm so glad you said it that way. So let's keep going. Hold on to that. Uh, So what else do we know? Well, here he is. He's living in the wilderness. And again, I don't think it was a desert place the way we imagine in America, but it was, you know, raw land, untamed land for sure. No conveniences, whatever. Uh, Civilization. Again, another form of asceticism, maybe. Uh, It says that he's wearing a camel hair garment, a belt of animal skin. All right. I'm sure they made nice clothes back then, don't you, Samuel? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they were skilled with cloth. It I mean, said, I mean they could do that stuff. Joseph coat of many colors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, again, camel hair, animal skin, uh, another kind of asceticism. And if we could, uh, quick side note, maybe you could actually read Second uh, Kings verse 1. I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, the snippet that I've highlighted there. Okie dokie. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. Yeah. So remember how we've been harping on this idea that John the Baptist was supposed to be the coming Elijah, the one that, that's preparing the way for Messiah. Well, I can't believe people don't talk about that connection between Elijah and John, I, I've never known that Elijah's story in Second Kings said that. Yeah, it's crazy, right? It is. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, let's get back. So so he's got his, his uh, camel hair, all that. It, it also says he eats locusts and wild honey. And again, I'm just going to say, isn't that, doesn't that sound a little like asceticism, right? It's just, it's a continuing theme here. Uh, but I'm going to take a moment. Let's do another quick side note. Um, this whole idea about locusts, um, and you know, you could pick a different word. You could say, um, grasshoppers or this or that or whatever. What we're really talking about is back in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 22, there were certain little bug like animals, whatever you want to call these that were in fact on the menu for the Israelites. They were kosher food. And so that's what they're talking about here. John's eating kosher stuff. It's just what's out in the wild. And then secondly, uh, this honey. Um, now, we, modern American people, when we think honey, I think we're pretty much focused on bees. Bees make honey. And that could have been what John had access to back then. Not saying it was or wasn't. It could have been. It also could have been something more like a, uh, I call it a syrup. They would make it from dates. Uh, something that he could have done, you know, himself. Uh, so uh, it's not to, I don't know, uh, try and tell you this is what John's life was really like. It's just to say, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. We we aren't exactly sure what he did, but there were a couple of things that were, you know, options for him. Uh, but that 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 was uh, that was how he ate, which sounds very weird to us, right? Yeah, I was going to point out real quick though that Leviticus passage, uh, chapter eleven. If you if you read that entire paragraph. Verses 20 through 23, I think it gives even even more insight into John was not going out of the norm of uh, refusing to follow the mitzvot, the commandments, as a Torah-observant Jew. That, that Those four verses talk about that most insects to Jewish culture were considered ritually unclean, but the locust yeah. was an exception. 
Right. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. It's an exception. Really good point. Yeah. So go back and read that stuff. We're not going to do it here, but uh, it'll help you get the picture. Now, you may have noticed, Samuel, might seem like I'm going out of my way to point out this asceticism trend that's running through this description of John. Were you hearing me? Oh, yeah. I think I heard that word handful yeah, of times. Yeah. Okay, but here's what's important. I am not trying to endorse asceticism per se. The reason that I'm highlighting it is actually kind of sort of for the opposite reason. This asceticism, if that's what we are seeing here in John, and and some people wouldn't even agree to, to classify it that way. I just went ahead and did so so that we could get on this topic. But if we're going to look at it in that way, This is John's method of living completely dependent upon God and his provision. Now, what I want to do is go back to what you originally said about asceticism. You said that people were, you know, kind of uh, not indulging the flesh, not, not, uh, no no pleasures, etc. And why? Because they're trying to reach a heightened sense of spiritual reality between themselves and God. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, and this this is going to be difficult to thread this one, I don't want to say that that is like a complete misconception. I'm not going there, but I think that in the history of Christianity generally, that has been blown way out of proportion, taken way out of its original context and meaning or purpose, and we've really got that messed up. So here's what I want to say. John wasn't doing this because he thought that his flesh was evil and it had to be constrained and and buffeted so that somehow he could touch and taste the spiritual. See, that flies in the face of everything that we see in the scriptures. I mean, just as one really, really big example, Samuel, when God was given Israel all of these rules, all of these laws, and he started to define the appointed times, the festivals, what was going on when they were doing the festivals? Oh, it was a big party. I mean, you had lots of special good food and you know, it really was a time of celebrating, you know, either rest with the Sabbath or, you know, Passover with them remembering being delivered out of Egypt. So, yeah, yeah, they were not to to buffet their bodies, constrain themselves, all that kind of stuff. Now, for sure, God did put a lot of limits. I mean, th- th- you know, there's a lot of stuff in the law, but those those weren't because your flesh is evil and you've got to put it down and put it away. It's just their instructions. This is what is good for you, for, for, every, for, for all of creation. And so John, he's not buying into that frame of thinking. John is simply doing it because he knew, he understood who God is. And, and he understood what, what he was being called to be and to do. And in some sense, Maybe a good picture of this is if we, if we look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. It's a big block, but I'm sure many of you will be familiar with it. It's the do not be anxious about 
you know, what you will eat or what you will drink. And it, and it talked about uh, clothing and all that, right? The familiar, Samuel? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So John is living this out, and I would say, literally. And, and I'm not even suggesting that Matthew 6, 25 to 34 is supposed to be lived out by every single one of us, literally. I'm just saying that's what John is doing. Now, why? Why would John be doing this? Well, I think the key is in verse 33 of Matthew 6 when he says, well, you know, you know what? Let's stick to the pattern. How about you read it? <laughs> <laughs> okay. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Yeah. So John's purpose, John was about the kingdom. Everything was about the kingdom. He knew that he was the one preparing the way for what? The kingdom and its king, the Messiah. And we can't, we can't lose that. We got to remember it's both. It's the kingdom and the kingdom's king. So John his asceticism, if we really want to categorize it that way, it was about seeking first the kingdom, total dependence on God, trusting that God was going to take care of the necessary things, the food, the drink, the clothing. And he just trusted. And so it's a neat picture. And again, I'm going to say, I don't think that anything in the scripture is suggesting that this is for all of us. This was a special calling on John the Baptist himself. Totally agree. Um, another way that you could say it just briefly is that John was attempting to remove a lot of the worldly distractions that get in the way of you being able to draw near to God as best as you can. And yeah. like I know that a, the Apostle Paul kind of talks about that in, I think it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He's talking about the dynamics of single people versus those who are married. And he like, ah. in passing, he makes comments saying like, in some ways, like I, I envy those who are single or, you, you know, if you're married, you know, like, because you don't have that extra responsibility of serving God through the relationship with your wife. Like your, your dynamic to how you relate to God changes dramatically when you add, you know, those other typical responsibilities in your life, and John didn't have any of those. Right. Yeah, none of those things are bad. No. But there is an obvious truth. They do, in fact, bring some distraction, if, if you, you know, want to say it that way. But it's a very real thing. It's okay. Yeah, so it's good point, good point. Now, I got a weird question for you, Samuel. Well, more than one. You know me. So, uh, who was John's dad again? Zechariah. Yeah. And uh, what tribe was he from? The tribe of Levi. And uh, was there any particular individual he was a descendant of? Aaron, right? Yeah. Yeah, Aaron. And so Zechariah was a priest, because that's what you do. And we even found out that Elizabeth, though she wasn't a priest, she also was from the tribe of Levi and from Aaron. So here's John. Um. Wasn't he supposed to become a priest? I mean, shouldn't he have started his priesthood, you know, somewhere around age 30? Isn't that how they did it? It seems reasonable. But did he ever do that? 
do we know? I mean, the text doesn't say it. Right. It's just a, it's, it's an interesting thing about the life of John. I mean, remember his parents, they were advanced in years. Did they die? You know, when John was fairly young, how did John end up in the wilderness? What's he doing out there? Um, did he try to enter the priesthood and then leave or did he never enter? And if, I mean, why? There's so many questions about this man's life that remain unanswered. I mean, we're getting some interesting picture, but sometimes it's fun to just let your mind go about, yeah, but, but what about, you know, fill in the blank, could be many, any number of things. Uh, so I just thought that's very interesting. The reason I bring that up is because I've heard a number of people teach that John was an Essene. Now, are you familiar with who the Essenes are, Samuel? No, they are uh, less known to me than the Pharisees and Sadducees. Okay, so if we were to go back in time, travel to first century uh, Israel, there's going to be four main groups. I'm sure there were many of others, but, but, the, but the main ones that stand out in terms of, call them like the religious factions or, uh, you know, if, if, if you were a sect of Judaism, right? Th- these would be the four main guys. We've already talked about Sadducees. We've already talked about the Pharisees. Another one that may sound familiar to people is the Zealots, right? Well, I think... Uh, they're going to come up in our, in our scriptures here before too long. Uh, and then another group was the Essenes. Now, the Essenes were known for basically separating themselves from the rest of the group. They actually did uh, practice asceticism in, in, in uh, at least some form. Um, and uh, I'm not saying that it was a good or a bad thing. I'm just saying that's a, a quality about them. And so people have made what I think is a reasonable and understandable connection saying, well, well, John, he's separated himself. He's, you know, doing some, uh, uh, denying of his, uh, flesh. And it's, I mean, uh, okay, sounds like, okay, John was in a scene, right? So there are similarities, but this is important. And I know we've said it before, but we're saying it again. Cause that's what we do. John, his disciples, And as you mentioned on the last podcast, Jesus, his disciples, all of them, they are more closely associated with the Pharisees than any other group. Now, to be fair, okay, maybe we probably shouldn't even try to plug these guys into a group, but if you're just trying to to understand what were they about and and how could we understand more about what they thought, how they lived, etc., it's just, it's important to know that of all the major groups, they were more closely aligned with the Pharisees than any other. Yeah, and if you think about it logically, I mean, Jesus referenced him talking to the Pharisees more in the Gospels than any other of those three groups. So in some ways you could, you know, you could potentially consider that he related the most to those. That's why he was so concerned with trying to get them to change their behavior, to change their life. It it would seem much more difficult to do that with a group that he had no similarities with. Right, exactly. Yeah, and we'll even see as we go that there is a, uh, you almost get the sense that the Pharisees are really trying to get Jesus to come on in and join their group officially. 
And we'll talk about that when we get there. Uh, but it's not because that he was he was way outside the bounds and some weirdo compared to them. It's because of all the similarities. But that's for another day. Uh, I, I did. I wanted to point something else out, and I know it sounds like we're being maybe petty or you know picky about the text or whatever. But it's good to see this stuff. Listen to this. Listen to this statement. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. So, I just want to ask. I mean, really? Were they all going out to see John? Everybody all around the region going out to see John? Seems a little bit hyperbole. Right, exactly. They tell stories in exactly the same way that we do. And if you just step back for a second, it's like, well, no. All he's really saying is that many came from all around. Yeah, it's like if I go to a UK basketball game in Rupp Arena in Lexington and I tell someone afterwards, yeah, man, all of Kentucky was in that stadium for that game last night. Like, were they, yeah. were they all? No. I just meant to say yeah. there was a lot of people there. Yeah, the place was packed. Yeah. And so uh, does it mean anything in particular? Is there like some spiritual lesson here? No, we're just pointing out yet again Look, when you're reading your Bible, loosen up a little bit and recognize that this is a literary work, in a sense. There are all kinds of different tools and and approaches being applied here, and don't try to stuff everything into a single box, especially the literal box. I mean, again, sometimes we do need to take it literal. It's super important that we take it literally, but not all the time. So, just wanted to point that one out. Now, uh, okay, so it also talks about uh, he was baptizing them in the River Jordan, okay? Now, okay, you, I'm sure, Samuel, well, you were probably baptized in a church, true? True. Yeah, I was baptized out in a reservoir. <laughs> <laughs> but even that, even the difference there, I bet you we kind of had the same picture going on. Mm-hmm. So, you got some guy... He's in charge of the baptism. I'm assuming he's a pastor, something like that. So he's standing in the water. You're standing in the water, whether it's a reservoir or a hot tub, or maybe it is a little stream, or who knows what it is, right? And what happens? They make a little speech. You know, you agree to a confession of some kind, and then they grab you by the back of the head, and they lower you back down into the water while you're holding your nose, maybe. And then they pull you back up and boom, you're baptized, right? Mm-hmm. That's the typical image. And for anybody out there who does it differently, I get it. There's more than one way to skin a cat. I'm just saying that's a pretty normal way. But that is not the image that you should have in your head when you're reading your Bible. Okay, we already talked about baptism from a first century Jewish perspective. It's immersion, totally immersion all the way. Now, here's another interesting point about it. You immerse yourself. Nobody's touching you. Nobody's helping you. If you were doing this privately, you'd be naked. But if you're out in public, like we're talking about here with John's baptism, you have to wear special clothing that's approved. And the, 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 what I mean by approved is they want to make sure that there's no part of your skin that could possibly remain untouched by the water. So it has to be, you know, uh, completely permeable, that kind of thing. 
but a person immersed themselves, and you know what? Once was not enough. You had to do it three times. Wow. And so the the point of this is just to show that John was more of a, uh, maybe a witness or a supervisor or something. And, and we're going to see that as the text continues, the, the role that he plays. But John was not grabbing people, dunking them under the water, lifting them back up and going, hey, hey, you're now forgiven. It's not what it looked like. Not what it looked like at all. Gotcha. Yeah. And in one final bit, it says, uh, after they were baptized, it says they were confessing their sins. All right. So one final little bit. Do you think that John had built himself a little booth out there and he sat on one side and you entered the other and he sat down like a priest and he took your confession. Don't believe so. (laughs) No, of course not. That would just be silly. Um, The the confession, it was a private matter between the individual and God. Everybody knew what everybody else was doing but it was still a private matter, okay? And this is important. Um, So you can imagine some people going out and they're hearing John's message, right? The kingdom is here. You need to repent. If you really want to be a part of this thing, you got to get on God's side. You got to be faithful and loyal to him and him alone. Whatever, who knows what his full message was. Now, some people, they probably heard this And whatever the situation of their life was, they were like, dude, that's it. I'm going in the water right now. And they went down, they did their baptism, they were done, so to speak. I mean, they had to change their life when they left, but whatever. Now, others, though, they may have heard John's message, and understanding the message properly, they realized that they actually had to go and make some things right. And so, they... Uh, would go, and who knows how long, but they they took care of business, so to speak, and then they would come back to be uh, baptized or immersed, immerse themselves, right? And all of this confession, that that was between them and God, and it was happening, happening privately, independently, but John was just watching over, making sure that people weren't entering in willy-nilly. He wanted to make sure that their baptism actually was sincere and that's what we're going to see in the text next yeah to me it it seems like it plays more into the i know i've heard you say this in the past paul that god is the only true source that can see the heart in a human being and right in some ways it 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 seems like it adds more weight to the process that happened back then with repentance you know, being directly connected with restitution where, you know, going up to the immersion pool or wherever, you know, there was an internal expectation that in reality, no one else knows about what I've done or not done except me and God compared to I'm not, I am not trying to harp on, you know, when people go up in a Western church and, the leader or the pastor or whatever asked them, you know, the typical, like, you know, who's your Lord and Savior, you know, who died for your sins, that kind of thing. But I don't know, that is touching less on the restitution than this Jewish method did. I don't know. It just, there's a lot more weight when I hear that. Yeah. 
Yeah, actually, and that is another point that's going to come up as we continue through our study. Just a quick little intro here. I think, generally speaking, within uh, the church in America, at least, that's what I'm familiar with, I think that we have minimized this idea that God is fully, fully aware of everything that is going on inside you. God sees all. And it's an important concept. It's, you know, it originated in Judaism and it should carry through to our Christianity. And again, we're not going to talk about it much here, but, but that idea just just living with the recognition there is nothing that i can hide from him that's a sobering thought mm-hmm. and actually a very and much like other things we've talked about in a sense it's very freeing because if you're going to confess something to god he's not surprised mm-hmm. he already he's there he knows it's only a matter of you coming to grips with it. But again, more for another day. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's good news. There will be future podcasts. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We won't run out of material. <laughs> Boy, you got that right. All right. So uh, let's go ahead and move to the next block. And in this case, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter three, verses seven through 10. And at the same time, cha- uh, the book of Luke chapter three, verses 7 through 9. And I think in this case, I think I'm going to go ahead and choose to read from Matthew. So let's do that one. Starting in uh, verse 7, says this. But when he saw, and he in this case is John the Baptist, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Whoa. It's a good thing we're in the South because I'm about to bring out the fire and brimstone, Samuel. (laughs) (sighs) All right. Oh, what you got? (laughs) All right. Well, let's begin. Uh, First of all, uh, there's a difference. Now, I read Matthew where it says he's, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees were coming to him. Luke, however, says, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out, you brood of vipers, etc., right? So, what we see, taking these two accounts together, is that John, his basic point, and, and what we can understand now about the role that John was playing in these baptisms, is that John... He, he didn't just baptize or, or endorse the baptism of anyone and everyone who showed up. And it didn't matter if they were of the religious crowd, the actual religious leaders, or if they were the common people. It didn't matter to John. His baptism came with standards 
and expectations. And, you know, like the one biggie, repentance. Now, we need to talk about what this repentance actually is. I know we spent some time on that in the last podcast. We'll do just a little bit more. I, I, let me repeat something we said. Repentance. When we're, if, if you were a, a Jew living back in the first century with John the Baptist, Jesus, all this, somebody said the word repentance, it meant one and only one thing. It was a change of behavior. And to be even a little more clear, it had to be guided by the law and not just the law, but the Torah. Okay. Now, Samuel, I believe that you have a little gift for me today. I do. Um, So in the last episode, when we started in Matthew 3, we first saw John saying, the gospel is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right. Now, if you took your uh, mobile device or your laptop and you went onto a source like Blue Letter Bible or Logos or any other biblical software that can get into some language specifics, and you looked up the definition of John's usage of repent in Matthew 3, verse 2, the Strong's info would tell you that repent would say things like to think differently or afterwards, to reconsider morally or to feel compunction, to change one's mind, uh, to change one's mind for better. So... That does not sound like the Jewish definition of repentance that you and I are talking about. Right. And you can do the same thing for the Old Testament references, too. Like, if you were going to search repent in the Old Testament and look up the same definition, Strong's just basically copies and pastes between the Hebrew and the Greek, and we're saying that that is a grave disappointment with what the Hebrew language is trying to convey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a sense, you have been cheated of the, of the richness of, of the actual meaning that should be conveyed right there. Now, there's no question. Does repentance include rethinking, changing your mind about a thing? Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it has to. Of course, it starts there. Here's the problem. If that's where it ends, if all you're doing is thinking about it, <laughs> you know, we could say wishing things were different or whatever. Okay, mm-hmm. you're not really experiencing repentance in its fullness. What goes on in your head must come out of the limbs of your body. It, it has to result in action, Mm-hmm. And so it's it's very similar to like if you had someone who was uh, uh, just really careful about trying to obey the letter of the law, but never really comprehending the deeper meaning or the the, the spiritual uh, side of the law, if you will. Um, it's it's like it, you're on the right track, but you're missing the real point. You're, you're falling short of where the real money is. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it's important that we get that out. And, and, and this is going to help us too. So we're talking about repentance. Notice what he says. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, meaning do things 
that demonstrate repentance, okay? Repentance has a very easily recognizable fruit, and it is good deeds. And boy, I can, I can actually feel it. There are people listening to the podcast who are going, that's wrong. Okay, stick with me. And it may take many podcasts, but I'm telling you, follow us through on this. Many, uh, uh, okay, they're going to hear me say that recognizable fruit, good deeds, there's a couple things going through their heads. Number one, you can't earn your salvation. You know, that's that's not what we're talking about. Uh, Another one is fruit. Many try to associate this idea of fruit with evangelism. Is there any fruit in your life? How many souls got saved? Right? That kind of Mm. thing. Okay. Is there anything wrong with uh, evangelism? Certainly not. Is there anything wrong with adding souls to the kingdom? Certainly not. Is there even anything wrong with referring to that as fruit? No. If you want to, go ahead. Just understand, that's not the fruit that we're talking about right here. Fruit is deeds. There is good fruit and bad fruit. And good fruit, it's very simple. It's everything that is in line with God, his will, his expressed will in the, the Torah, including the law, uh, maybe his expressed will to you through the Holy Spirit, whatever. That's good fruit. But remember, everything that's going on here, we, we have to get our mind back. This is first century Israel Jews. That's who's talking. That's who's listening. That's what we're talking about. So th- there's actually some Jewish writings that talk about this idea that, that, that a person could technically keep the letter of the law in every way and still be a horrible person. The Pharisees themselves, and this is going to be a continuing theme as we walk through the Gospels, the Pharisees were known for painstaking adherence to the letter of the law. But as we know, Jesus still had a problem with them. It's because they fell short on the spiritual nature of the law, the the deeper meaning of the law, the actual purpose of the law. The law wasn't about, hey, keep these rules or I'll kill you. It was, I'm giving you instructions so that you might learn how to live. And in that, you might image me. It's, it's such an important picture, but we got to get it. And, and I'm going to read it again. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit that can easily be seen and recognized as repentance from disobedience to God and now obedience to God. Yeah. Anyway, important, important topic. Yeah, one of the things that you and I had talked about in the previous episode after we had stopped recording that this message of repentance that John is saying and Jesus will later say kind of is conveying that God is saying, I want a people group who is doing the right things rather than thinking the right things. Yeah. Because, I mean, James, Jesus' brother, in his letter in the New Testament, it goes into that, you know, faith, versus works, which one is alive, which one is dead. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, you could insert uh, repentance for works or restitution, whatever. Hey, they're all saying the same thing, that 
you can think any system of beliefs that you want, but if it actually doesn't produce something that changes your lifestyle and how you treat people and how you attempt to relate to God, then it's kind of worthless. Yeah, exactly. And you brought up James. You know, it's also popular in the church. People think there's there's disagreement between James and Paul. How do we reconcile these two things? You know what? I don't know how long it's going to take. We might be on like podcast episode 768 or something, but <laughs> but when we get there, we're going to show you that there is no problem between James and Paul, but it, <laughs> that's going to take us a while. But anyway, yeah, good point, Samuel. Good point. We're going to move on now to the next little bit when he was talking about, uh, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Oh, now this, this is a powerful argument. And, and I mean, if they were saying we have Abraham as our father, they were making a very powerful argument. And here's what I mean. God has many times in the scriptures, especially Old Testament scriptures, right? He has, uh, for example, relented from punishment based on someone else's merit. Or the opposite. He has actually brought blessing due to someone else's merit. And I'm going to make this very simple for you. That is called grace. We try to infuse all kinds of meaning into grace, but you want to really understand it, that's what it is. You are benefiting from someone else's merit. And that's exactly how your relationship with you, God, Christ, that's how it all works. Jesus is the one who has all the merit. And where you fall short, God, by Grace applies some of that merit to you. And that's the picture that we're seeing here. So when they say we have Abraham as our father, they're calling on that idea. That's a very powerful argument, right? And uh, just throughout, if you wanted to go read about some of these things, you might uh, look in the story of Noah. His family was saved because of him. Uh, Abraham, uh, well, I mean, We could talk about this many different ways. Isaac and Jacob uh, benefited because of him. Israel benefited because of him. In fact, all of the nations benefit because of him. Uh, We could go on and on. Uh, Moses is another one. Uh, He saved Israel uh, because of his merit with God. David, you go read about those stories, and if if you read them looking for others being saved by the merit of another, you're going to see it in the stories. It's, it's, it's an awesome picture. But here's what we're getting at in this text. What happens, you know, ultimately, when Jews count on that merit without actually fulfilling their own responsibility? And, and I, I, what I mean is with continually not fulfilling their own responsibility, Right? You may see the one circumstance or the two circumstances where God will do that, but there is a point in which, hey, if you're not holding up your end of the bargain in any way whatsoever, well, then it leads to trouble. You fail to flee from the wrath to come. And in Israel's case, that is exile, right? 
And we see that in the history of Israel. There was a first exile to Babylon and the one that's been going on for 2,000 years. They're in exile right now. So this point that John is making, hey, don't think that you can count on the merit of Abraham, you know, like over and over and over and over and over. It's, It's very easily and appropriately applied to us in our relationship to God and Christ. We, too, must bear good fruit. We must be aligned with God's will in, in our everyday behavior. And, and uh, again, <laughs> broken record. Maybe we should rename the podcast. Broken record. Most! <laughs> His will is first and foremost expressed in the Torah. And I'm not denying that he might speak to individuals through the Holy Spirit, and I don't, I don't even mean might, does. But understand, we've got a huge section of written scripture to glean what is God's will, right? Now, we, we're Gentiles, we're, we're not Israel, we, we get that. We don't have the same covenant obligation that a Jew has, we get that. And we're not trying to convince anybody that they should or whatever, But we are trying to sell this idea that we can gain from the Torah Mm -hmm. in the same way, right? That's the important part. But this argument, we have Abraham as our father. Boy, don't look at them like they're just a bunch of, uh, you know, losers. Uh, I mean, they're going to come back and say the same thing to Jesus later in the Gospels, too. Yeah, this is, this is powerful arguing, and, and it takes a powerful uh, argument in return. So, this is big. It, just in case you feel like, man, guys, I don't know, it feels like you're just pushing this stuff a little bit too far. Well, let's keep going. Notice what he says next. You are like a tree. And if you do not produce good fruit, you will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Wow. That doesn't sound like all sweetness and sugar, does it? Yeah, as Marty McFly says in Back to the Future, this is heavy, Doc. (laughs) That's right. Hello, McFly. No matter what (laughs) your eschatological views are, and, and we don't even have to argue about that here, it just doesn't matter. Because in the end, no matter what your views are or what you think your eternal destiny might be or whatever, this whole thing about you're a tree, you're not producing good food, fruit, you get cut down and thrown into the fire. Okay, this is not the outcome you were hoping for, right? No. And, and again, maybe, maybe we're just too simple for our own good or maybe people just need to pay attention. What is the remedy? The remedy is bear good fruit. Who's responsible for that? You or God? Me, myself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, God wants God wants to help you. He's going to help you if you are willing to. Of course, yes. But quit walking around like you've got no role in this thing. I mean, we're just reading the scripture here. It's very, very clear. Now, We've talked about it. Where? How do you know how to bear good fruit? Well, that's, okay, yes, the Holy Spirit, but that's what your Bible's for. Now, number one, we've talked about it probably 
20 times already. It's in the Torah, especially, but all of the Old Testament is valuable. And we today, we have the added benefit. We've got Jesus' teaching. We've got him looking back to the Torah and and expounding on it, explaining it, helping us to see the deeper meaning so that we can even, even know what it is to bear good fruit. This is heavy stuff, but it's good stuff. For sure. Yeah, and we need to, we just need to wrap our heads around it. Now, mm-hmm. here's the thing. We read that little bit and, you know, we're giving you our take on it and and trying to help you see what exactly it is that John is saying and what people are saying and, you know, the arguments being made here. It's important stuff. But as the text continues, uh, I think that we're going to see that the people who were listening, they knew exactly what John was getting at. Mm -hmm. So let's go to the text. You'll see exactly what I mean. Uh, Luke Uh, Chapter 3, now, verses 10 through 15. This is a a solo block, if you will. Says this, verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Not what do we think, what do we do, right? Verse 11, and he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, and I'm reading that with a little cliffhanger tone because it's in the middle of a sentence and we're stopping anyway. (laughs) Uh, So as if I didn't uh, uh, emphasize it enough, so the crowds hear that they must do something. In this time, in this place, in this culture, they were very likely doing, already doing, a number of Jewish, you know, religious things. Their lives were not without God and without Judaism. So their question is actually very astute. They're saying, John, what are we missing? But notice John doesn't tell them to give up their lives and live live like him, totally dependent on God in the wilderness, right? He could have done that, but he didn't. John goes right for the practical issues. And, And for pretty much everyone, okay, so this was, you know, basic everyday ordinary people, his instruction was, hey, you know what? There are people all around you. People that you know. How about you make sure that they have food and clothing? Huh? That, that's a good place to start. And hey, for you tax collectors, and understand, these guys were collecting for the Romans. That's why they were so hated. And in the process of doing their job, what they did was overtax, and then they kept the surplus. That's how they became rich. Okay? But for those tax collectors, 
They weren't told to quit their job. They were told to do their job with integrity. Huh? That's got to be hitting some people right between the eyes. How about the soldiers? Okay, these weren't Roman soldiers. Just to be clear, they're Jewish soldiers, soldiers, all right? They weren't to use their position of power and authority for their own enrichment through extortion and lies and theft and injustice. But, much like the tax collectors, they were to do their job with integrity, being content with their wages. Now, how easily does that apply to our lives? We, too, must live our lives no matter how simple or mundane or big and important. doesn't matter. We need to live with integrity, seeing that others' needs are met and their rights are protected rather than just seeking our own. This, and and this is what's so important, this is what the law and the Torah should have led them to already. They shouldn't even have needed John to explain it to them. This is the end of the law, if I can use that phrase, because we're going to attack that later. The end of the law. They were to, to care for the downtrodden. They were to make sure that everyone was cared for and not oppressed. It's just, it, this is a great picture. Great picture. And then one final little bit. It says, as the people were in expectation. Well, in expectation of what? Uh, they're expecting the Messiah. Yeah. Hearing those things sounds very Messiah-like. Yeah. They were expecting a Messiah. So as the people were in expectation, well, because of John's gospel message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which is, you know, I mean, if we were to change that into modern language, it would, it would be like saying that the messianic age is here, right? But because of John's message, the people started to wonder, hey, is John, is he him? Is he the Messiah? Well, John wanted to make sure that he squashed that rumor like a bug. But to be fair, I think that is for another podcast, namely the next one. Yeah, I was going to say really quickly um, what what they were thinking about with wondering if he was the Messiah or not. It's not an outlandish thing to say because, and I'm sure we'll touch on it in a later episode, Jesus, whenever he is basically starting his ministry, I know in Matthew, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, he said, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so you could ask the question like, well, is one of them copying the other? Well, it's like, oh, it sounds like it's the universal call that God is giving you know, first the heralder of Messiah, and now Messiah is saying the same thing. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's it's not an unreasonable thing because the message that John is preaching is what Jesus will be preaching, but Jesus is going to, you know, bring it to such a greater magnitude right. than John. And it doesn't even stop there. But you're absolutely right. Yes. Mm-hmm. There is so much that lies before us, and... uh you know, we're doing our best to, 
to get these foundational ideas out so that when we get there, you can see them so much more clearly. They become so much more obvious because you've got a little little groundwork uh, behind it all. Yeah. I have another little tidbit, a little midrashic, midrashic nugget to throw in about what you were saying with John's message to those vocational people on how to live their lives. Oh, bring it on. Uh, radically. So people, I'm sure lots of people know Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 about trust in the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul. Don't lean on your understanding. Then in verse 6, it says, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight or he will you know, direct your paths. Uh-oh, um, straight paths. That's right. Ah! This is the way. I mean, it seems pretty straightforward, but um, there's a halakala um, that talks about it in more depth, and I just think it brings so much more light to what in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight means. So they say, Consequently, one who follows such way all of his life is constantly in God's service, even when he is buying and selling, even when he performs the grossest of duties seeing that his thought beneath it all is to find enough to satisfy his wants so that his body be sound, ready to serve God. Even when one sleeps, if his sleep be purposeful so that his mind be rested and rest his body so as to prevent himself from becoming sick and be unable to serve God as a result of sickness, it will be found that even his very sleep is part of his service to God. (laughs) It's awesome. And I this, know, right? This is the message, the image that we're trying to get across. It is a loyalty and a faithfulness toward him. That is the Christian life. It's the, it's the Jewish life, the Messianic Jewish life, whatever, fill in the blank. Oh, that is the thing to aspire to right there. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. What a great thing to end on. So you good to... To wrap it up for today? Well, as much as I hate to, I think we must. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie dokie Most podcast. Please don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that you are notified when our episodes release every Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time so that you never miss an episode. Our podcast is now on both the Apple Podcast app and the Podbean app, so make sure you check us out on your mobile device. We also have a Facebook page. Just search Okie Dokie and you can like and follow our page as we notify you on new episodes. You can also visit us at our official website at www.okidokimos.com for more information or to listen online. And finally, if you have any questions or comments about our content, please feel free to send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. Until next time, We hope and pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. See y'all on the flippity flip.